Uh, we're going to conclude our series here um, at, with really the last three chapters of the book of Revelation that really sums up not just the book of Revelation, it sums up the entire Bible, the last three chapters of the Bible. And, and uh, it should hopefully, and this is what this series has been about, it should be something that doesn't just elicit fear or anxiety about other things that we don't quite know what's going on or what's going to happen, but hopefully because we know that God is in control and he's making everything new, hopefully it's something that can give us great hope. And really these last three chapters, it kind of reminds me of those home makeover shows, The Reveal Day. You know, you've seen those. There's lots of those that where it's like the reveal day where you look at it and you see, oh, this is the finished product. This is what it was all about. And that's really what the final chapters of the book of Revelation are talking about. It really reveals here in this last couple of chapters. It's like, you know, you, you, you open up the curtains and you're like, okay, we were thinking about doing hardwood floor here. We, were, we even talked about bamboo, but we just decided we're going to go with gold on these floors. That's kind of, that's, that's the big reveal of the end of the book of Revelation. Instead of, uh, uh, we, we thought about replacing the siding here on the outside of the house. And it's like, no, instead we're doing Jasper. I don't even know what Jasper is, but that's what the book of Revelation talks about is streets of gold, Jasper that is clear as crystal. Anybody know what Jasper is? I don't know what Jasper is. And kind of reveals and opens up that first look in saying this is what the whole story was about. And so it's really important and critical parts of the Bible. And so we've been going through uh, last several weeks, obviously, the book of Revelation is one of the most difficult books to interpret and understand. So we've been trying to kind of make sense of it and, and kind of come to some peace with it. And there's lots of different things that we've kind of said is principles on how we're going to look at it. And there's four different things that I said, this is kind of ideas that you can have in mind as you kind of try to read difficult parts of the Bible. Is that first of all, that the scripture has a relevant message for all times. And I really believe that, that the scripture speaks and is alive and is speaking to us and has spoken in the past and will continue to speak. And so I approach the Bible saying, God has something to say to me uh, that, is, that is relevant and important for my life. We've talked about how, how another way to interpret difficult parts of the scripture is not to subtract and not to add, not to fill in the blanks with things that not quite there and just say like, I'm gonna add extra things because I'm speculating or I think this is the way it might be, but not also to subtract things, not to take st stuff away that we say, it's a little difficult to understand or difficult to, to, to fully grasp. So I'm gonna just like ignore that or subtract that and kind of have only pick and choose Bible verses. So we wanna make sure that we don't add and we don't subtract. And then today, what I wanted to talk about is one way that we interpret difficult passages of the Bible or difficult concepts in scripture is we focus on what is clear, not on what is unclear. There are some things that are not clear in scripture. There's some things that are a little bit mysterious. There's some things that we get bits and pieces of it, but the full picture is not laid out. And I think sometimes what we like to do, it's another kind of add and subtract kind of principle, is we like to just really would like a very clear answer. And sometimes God says, there's going to be a little bit of mystery. There's going to be a little unknown, specifically with things that 
maybe are things that are coming into, in the future, things that are happening uh, you know, down the road. You have to trust these principles and live your life by that, and then we'll see how it plays out. And so in Scripture, it's really important that we have kind of those pillars. We have those pillar things in our life that we say, this is what I put my faith in, and then there's other things that I'm not quite 100% certain about, and I'm not going to like base my whole faith on that. If we base our whole faith on things that are unclear, sometimes what happens is if one little piece of that seems to kind of start to crumble, the whole house comes down, and it feels like I can't still maintain faith. It's important for us to remember what we really put our faith in, what we really focus in on. And chapters 20 through 22 in this book paint a real clear picture, and it gives us a lot of hope. It paints a clear picture of saying, this is what God is doing. So if your head has been swimming through some of this, or if your head has just kind of been swimming in life, looking around at the world and saying, how does this make sense? God, what are you doing? God, what is going on in global events? All of these things. What I just want to say to you, and hopefully this series has helped a little bit in that, is, is you know, don't, man, don't focus so much necessarily on all of those things that are uncertain and confusing and unclear Focus on the things that are foundational, that we know for certain. Focus on that and live your life with that. Not living a life focused on anxious things that are unknown. God really gave us some clear things that we can put our faith on. And some other things that are open to debate. So, we're going to get into Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, where... Um, it's really the commencement. It's really the commencement of Scripture. Have you guys gone to uh, uh, high school graduations or college graduations before? Anyone here? You know, here's what always happens at these events, right? So, somebody gets up in this kind of big Harry Potter robe and this pompous hat. You know, and if they have lots of degrees, they get these weird like penguin flaps that they have coming off of this little nightgown, this weird nightgown. And they get up there and they say stuff like this. They say, this is a commencement. This is not the end, but commencement is, and the word commencement means a beginning or a start, right? Isn't that what everybody said? I think it's required. It's required whenever there's a graduation service. Somebody gets up and says, commencement, it, the word commencement means it's a beginning or a start. Because a lot of times we think about terms like that. And we think about this is the end of high school. This is the end of college. But rightfully so, at a graduation like that, the focus isn't on the end of that moment. The focus is that this moment has led up to something more, that there's a lot more coming. And that's, I think, how we should understand the book of Revelation and how we should understand this. And that's kind of the title of our series. It's not over. Is It's a commencement. It's the beginning or the start of what God was intending from the very beginning. And so here's what it says in Revelation 21 through 4. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hands a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, 
and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw, uh, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or in their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And so this portion, has, we've talked about a lot of things that led up to this moment, but this actual section of scripture is one of the most debated sections of the entire Bible. And, and I don't want to belabor it and get into the weeds on different things, but I do want to kind of quickly run through kind of the different views of what this kind of time period and era is talking about. There is this thousand-year period, it's been commonly called kind of a millennium, for a thousand-year period where it says Satan is bound and peace reigns and Jesus reigns and rules with the faithful people. This millennium, this takes place. And it's a small portion here in the book of Revelation, but it really is kind of the hinge point for lots of different opinions on the entire book. And we've talked about some of those things in previous weeks, but I want to give you kind of those different views, a real quick snapshot to help us kind of understand a little bit. All of the debates have been kind of over the sequence of events and who would go through things, and also how literally you take these words. And these debates kind of come into play with the different views on saying this is maybe how this will play out, this idea of a thousand years of Christ reigning and being at peace and Satan being bound. The first idea, or the first view, is called historical premillennialism. If you want to impress your friends, you can use some of these terms. You know, around the dinner table, what do you think about the view historical premillennialism? Uh, and you know what? It'd be even better if you did it in a penguin Harry Potter costume with a, with, a, with a flat hat, right? Then you would really impress everyone. But historical premillennialism is an idea that this is a very literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. And this is a literal thousand years, a real you know, you can put it on a clock, a thousand years. And it happens after a literal seven-year tribulation. Some of the stuff we talked about in previous weeks. And where the church, um, which is, you know, represented by these faithful people, will reign with Jesus after his second coming. So the sequence of events is there's a seven-year period of tribulation Christ returns, and there is uh, this thousand-year period where there's peace in the world, and it's followed by a final judgment at the end of this period of time. And so there's people in history, and this is one of the first kind of interpretations of this book in church history where some early church fathers in the first couple of centuries kind of had this view, like someone like Irenaeus. Um, uh, I don't know if you have ever heard that name, but there's people that hold that view. There's a second view, and this is the most modern uh, interpretation of the book of Revelation, which is a, a spin off of the first, which is dispensational premillennialism. The idea that it's similar, you read the scripture very literally, there is a seven-year period of tribulation followed by a thousand-year 
time of a millennium. But the difference is, and the, the, the change would be, is that there would be a rapture of the church prior to a seven-year period of revelation. The church would exit the scene and not go through that seven-year period of revelation. And it is the most literal interpretation of the book of Revelation, and it emphasizes kind of the nation of Israel and the pictures of the nation of Israel. And in many ways, it leads uh, a lot of people who interpret this way to be uh, a very political kind of interpretation where politics are coming into play significantly. Um, and uh, there's a very literal view of the nation of Israel and Jesus being like on the throne like David in the nation of Israel. So a very literal view at a lot of those different things. It is the most modern interpretation and it's kind of been um, uh, people who have uh, it's, it's like the one that the Left Behind series would represent, this interpretation of this era and this time period. Okay, So uh, a third one is post-millennialism. And this is significantly different than the first two, where it is a non-literal interpretation of the millennium. So the idea is that the time between Jesus, it's, it's a time between Jesus' first and second coming. And so Jesus came here on earth uh, the first time and walked among us. And this is representing a period between his first coming and his second coming. And it's not to be interpreted as an actual thousand year period of time. And so, so pretty, pretty much this is, was one of the most popular kind of views in this country between the era of about the Civil War and right before both world wars started. And, and really kind of lost steam in our culture when we went through two world wars and people were like looking at it like, man, it doesn't look like there's much of a positive millennial reign of Christ here on earth right now. It looks like a pretty negative world right now. And we see all these atrocities going on all over. But it really is kind of the view that there will be peace on earth that is ushered in by the community of faith and the church and Christ will reign over the world, but not in a physical kingdom, literal kingdom, but the church will prevail and the church's message will go on and, and uh, it will be a time of peace um, where it's kind of a progressive kind of uh, movement toward this. There's um, different people have kind of expressed this view. It's kind of one uh, that, that some Calvinists and some people that follow John Calvin would would historically uh, uh, follow. It's probably what John Wesley uh, believed, but he never really specifically said what he believed. And then there's a fourth view, amillennialism. Sorry if this is getting too much in the weeds, but I want to just kind of run through it really quickly. Um, and this is, again, another non-literal interpretation of a millennium where it is an just an idea that comes and begins to emerge over time. But in this view, it's a little different than post-millennialism in that um, the, there is an idea that there will be some suffering and there will be some pain and it won't necessarily just progressively get better and better, but there will be a point in time where Christ says, you know what, I'm going to usher in a period of peace sometime in the future. This is the view that historically a lot of the big mainline churches have held, like, and people like Augustine, Luther, Calvin, some of the major denominations have that have kind of some more historical roots. This is kind of 
what they taught. So, so a lot of different things, a lot of different ideas, and really the reason I run down some of this is sometimes you may be looking at, hearing things, and saying, is, is, this, is this the only view? And there's, lot, there's been a diversity of opinion. There's been a diversity of opinion on this. And what I would say is I'm not trying to be evasive when I say this, and I'm really being sincere when I say this. I'm not 100% convinced by, by any of these, really. I'm not quite sure. And it's okay for me to say that there's some areas in life where I say I'm not perfectly clear on it. I'm not sure. I think if there was anyone, if you wanted to pin me down and ask me, all right, what would you get to if you really had to say which one you view? I'd say probably the one that I probably least agree with is probably the most popular one, which is like the dispensational premillennialism. It's probably the one I would disagree with the most. Just, uh, but there's also really faithful, great churches, and this is probably the one that is taught about and spoken about the most in our culture and in this time that are doing really, really great things. And I'm okay and at peace with, I probably don't agree with some of those things. But there's, I'm open and it's okay to kind of say, I don't put my faith and my hope on that. And it's okay to ponder it. It's okay to think about it. It's okay to like debate it. Some of you, maybe this is the last time you'll ever think about it in life and that's really okay. Because we need to say, what do I put my faith in? Do I put my faith in a sequence of events, exactly how it could be, or exactly how it should be interpreted? Or do I put my faith in something else? And so this has been highly debated and thought about and, and discussed, and there's lots of nuance and detail in that. And I just honestly say, that's not what I put my hope in. That's not what I put my faith in. And I'm very humble enough to say, I could very well be wrong, but that is not what I, I'm going to worry about too much. And so I hope as you're thinking about some of these things, if you hear stuff out there, Facebook, all of that, that you can say, I, be at peace with saying, I'm not quite sure about all of those details. And I'm going to be at peace at saying, this is what I'm sure about. And I think the ne next section of scripture is something that we can say, this is something I'm pretty sure about. And this is something that I put my faith in. And so let's read in chapter 21 where it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God 
and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual immoral, those who practice magic arts, the adulterers, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so, so if you look at it, after you get through all the debates and after you get through all the discussion, which maybe you're interested, maybe you're not, we see the point of all of it. And really the point of all scripture is it says, I am making everything new. You see, see the scripture, it says right here, it says God's dwelling place is now among the people. So if you get to the bottom line and you look at it and you say, what is the, this book trying to convey? What is it trying to teach us? Is it saying, really, to sum it up very simply, evil loses and God wins. Evil loses and God wins. That's what the book is really saying. And that's what the Bible is really saying. And if you just imagine kind of how how we can get caught up sometimes in missing that big point. Sometimes we really do. It seems so obvious and simple that evil loses and God wins, but sometimes we get caught up and we miss that point. You know, you would think that evil would have a tough time kind of recruiting people for their team. Don't you think? Don't you think like evil would have a tough time saying, you know, imagine kind of like the playground and you're like picking teams and you like got God's team over there and you got Satan's team over here. You got the evil team and the good team and you're picking teams or you're trying to divide up. What team will you be on? Can you imagine the pitch for the evil team? Come and be on my team because you know what? We're going to, you know what? It's, we're going to create a lot of chaos. We're going we're gonna to scare some people. We're going to do some things that like, just, just like are, are kind of make everybody nervous and everybody mad. And at the end, we're going to lose miserably. That's what we're going to do. We're going to completely and totally lose. That's our team. We're going to ruin the game. That's the point of it. But inevitably, we're going to fail miserably. Come and join this team. But somehow, this is appealing sometimes. Somehow people say, I'm going to follow that. I'm going to, I, I would like to go down that road and follow that path where we, we recognize and we see and the scripture is very clear. If you're on, you're on God's team, you will win. Don't forget that. If you're on God's team, you will win. We can debate premillennialism, postmillennialism, all, all of the, you can debate all of these things. But in the end, the point is God's team wins and evil loses every single time. That's the point. And the point is, is that will happen, the sequence of events, the timing, the pattern, exactly how it takes place, I am not 100% clear on. But I do know that. And what's important for us is we don't forget that. And it's easy, actually, to do. It's easy to kind of get caught up in chaos. And caught up in the, the team that is, that is creating evil and chaos and conflict and say, like, it looks like they're winning. It looks like they're winning. It looks like they're prevailing. And everybody else is kind of like, they might just pull this off. They might figure it out. We know it's not going to win. This past week, I had... Uh, a fun experience that pet owners sometimes get that uh, the vet has been telling us. They said, 
you know, you need to get your dog's teeth cleaned. And they, I, they've been telling us this a couple of years. And we went in and they were like, you got to get the teeth, dog's teeth cleaned. I'm like, come on, it's a dog. Dogs live out in the wilderness. And like, do you know what dogs eat? Really? They need to get their teeth cleaned? We brush them every now and then. I don't. Alisa does, brushes them every now and then. And it's probably okay. But they've been telling us this for a couple of years. And then they tell us, it'll cost, you know, you got to put them under anesthesia. It'll cost between, you know, maybe $500 to $1,000. Like, no. Nope, that's okay. I'm good. Uh, I'll just, uh, we're, we're good with uh, stinky breath over here. Uh, we, we love her anyways. But finally, this last time, it was like, okay, it really needs to happen. And the teeth are not looking great. And it's like, all right. So this past week, we scheduled the appointment to get uh, Strudel's teeth clean. Strudel the poodle. And so we brought in Strudel. Uh, they put her under anesthesia and they said, they said, hey, we're going to call you because it's possible we have to extract some teeth. And um, if we do, are you good with that? I'm like, all right, give me, you don't have to tell me specifically, but give me the dollar breakdown. That's what I care about. Okay. A little bit. I'm like, this is why we didn't do it before. Cause it seems pretty expensive and all this. And they're like, we just can't tell you until we get in there and we get, get a good look at it. But I'm like, all right, do what you got to do. We're here. That's what we're going to do and everything. So we get the call and they say, well, Strudel's going to have to get 11 teeth extracted. 11 teeth extracted. Well, we probably should have gone in a, a, a few years earlier, but they're like, yeah, they're, she's got 11 teeth that are like rotten and she's got to get those out. And it's like, it's not going to be good for her health. And one of them's cracked and we got to dig it out and all that. I was like, oh boy. Okay. All right. So they did that. And finally, after, you know, this day, and you can imagine my whiny, wimpy dog, which is absolutely whiny and wimpy dog getting picking strudel up after this incident was the most pathetic thing i've ever witnessed in my entire life my daughter went with me so she could like hold strudel on the way home because we knew strudel would not take this like swimmingly that this would be this would be a difficult moment for her. and we got her and she was kind of kind of like this and her tongue was like kind of sticking out of the side of her mouth because she has no teeth anymore. <laughs> so I was, I was like, ugh, ugh. And she just is like the most pathetic thing I've ever seen. And I just kind of like, and, and And she's already pathetic anyways. And so she was just kind of, life is miserable. And we took her home and we're like, all right, Strudel, we're going to snuggle and watch some shows and hang out and you can just chill out. And life was absolutely miserable. But she was just like sitting there in her little bed and we're, we're petting her. And she was like, gave us like a look and gave us like this impression, like that life is never going to be back to this is the worst thing ever. How in the world did you do this? Like, unbelievable. Like, like you could look at Strudel and just see, like, she was not happy to be alive in this moment in time. But then, about a day later, amazingly, she's a lot better. And she's, the doctor said, she's probably, like, in a day or so, when all this wears off, she had 11 rotten teeth in her mouth. And she's going to feel a lot better because she doesn't have that, like, terrible teeth that are in her mouth. And she's going to feel healthier and be better and be more alive and more energetic over the course of time because she needed to get that stuff out of her mouth. But you see those moments, like, where it feels like it's not going to be better. It feels like 
it's never going to change, is what we have to resist. That's what we have to resist in life because it's easy to kind of be in that moment where it feels like everything around me is chaos and everything around me is miserable. And it's easy to go down the road and look at the whole world and just say, we're going to lose. Evil's going to win. Evil's going to win in this world. Evil's going to win in my neighborhood, in my home, in my family, and all of these things. And have a mindset almost that just says, it is hopeless and there's nothing I can do. And I really believe that the big picture of Revelation was written to tell us that's not true. Was written to tell us that that is not true. That that concept and that idea is not true. And if you ever start mentally going down that road and emotionally going down that road saying, I am going to kind of get tricked into this idea that evil is ultimately going to win. What happens is, you know, we can easily just kind of give up on things. We can give up on maybe a moral stand that we had before and say, it's hopeless. There's nothing I can do anymore. And so I'm not going to do anything. We can give up on our neighbors. We can give up on our friends. We can give up on all kinds of things in life and start to think and recognize evil is going to win. And it's not true. It's the most deceptive thing that you could ever believe and start to, start to have creep into your life. Is that this path, the path of, of following sin and disobeying God and not going down this path, is going to lead to something good. It's not going to lead to anything good. It never will. And so I think sometimes when we're tired, when we're defeated, when we're discouraged, sometimes we can get into a place where we just throw in the towel and we, we buy into that lie. And the scripture is saying, don't ever do that. Recognize that there is two teams. There is evil and there's good. One team is going to cause chaos and problems and mess everything up. But they're going to lose. There's, this, there's my theological summary of the book of Revelation. It's not as impressive. Pre-millennial, post-millennial. Not as impressive as that. But that's really my theological summary of the book of Revelation is that if you go down a path and you decide to join the team of evil, it is a losing effort and you will lose. It's not, it doesn't make any sense. But still, we've seen endlessly throughout generation and generation people saying, that looks appealing. That looks appealing for some reason. That looks like maybe a positive thing, and it looks like maybe they're winning. So maybe I should go down that path. Resist that. Resist it with everything you have. Let's continue reading. In chapter 22, verse 12, it says this. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and those who practice magic arts the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you to give you this testimony for the churches. 
I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. The scripture is telling us, and it's an, an, an incredible picture. As we see in the opening chapters of the Bible, it says, God created the earth without sin. And he said, placed humanity in a garden. And then sin messed it up. But at the end of the book, it kind of places people back into that same picture and uses the same language as it did at the beginning of the Bible. And in some ways, it's like this is titled in my Bible, Eden Restored. That's what it's, how it's titled in the little notes of my Bible. And it's talking about God making everything new and bringing it all back to what he intended. He did not intend for sin to rule. He did not intend for sin to, to reign in your life or anyone's life. And there will be a moment in time where he says, what I intended from the very beginning for people to live with me, for people to be in harmony with me, and for there to be no more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, that will come to be again in the future. That will happen. You will get a chance to eat from the tree of life. And anyone who wants to take this free gift can take it. Anyone who wants this free gift of life with me and eternity with me can take it. And you can have it. And you can be on my team in that regard. And so right now what we have to put our faith in and focus on is saying this is what is clear in my mind. This is, there's lots of things that are unclear and maybe through this whole series I just confused you more. That's quite possible. But hear this. Zach is back there. Yep, yeah, yep. <laughs> Shaking his head. Yes, you confused me more. No. Uh, it's quite what we put our faith in is that God has extended the free gift of the tree of life to anyone who will receive it, anyone who will take it, anyone who will accept that. My goodness, that is what we cling to. That is what we put our hope in. And so all of these other things that maybe get confusing and get in the way, remember that God has given us a free gift. God has offered and extended to each and every one of us a free gift. A gift to say, you can live with me. You can follow me. You can be forgiven. This is the point of all of it. Is that the God of the universe, who is in the beginning, all the way to the end, is there with us. This one last verse I want to read and reiterate. Revelation 21, 5 and parts of 6, it says, He who is seated on the throne, I am making everything new. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God will win. God will prevail. Yeah! Let's go! <laughs> Let's go! Thank, thank you, Thank you, Zach. And that is what we put our faith in. God is making everything new. We 
can be filled with hope. Filled with hope. We're on the right team. So the, the action step and the call for each and every one of us is to say, I accept. I accept that free gift. And I'm going to live more and more. God, I'm on your team. I'm more and more in. I'm more and more committed. I'm not going to even be tempted or, or focus any of my attention on going down a path that just leads to destruction. God, I'm with you. And I accept. Will you join me in prayer? God, I, to, I have to humbly admit that there's some things in this book that I'm unclear about. I'm not sure exactly the timing, the sequence of events, exactly what will take place. But God, I put my faith in you. I know you're the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. And you know you are making everything new. And so God I say have your way with me. Make me new. I want to take a moment to offer you an opportunity to, to reflect and to accept the free gift that God offers. The picture is clear that anyone who wants to take the gift of the water of life, who wishes to accept that, God is there. God is willing. God is waiting. God has been, from the moment you were born, trying to stir your heart and move you to a relationship with him. Sometimes it feels like evil is winning, but it's not true. Evil will not win. God will win. So the offer has been extended to you. And it's so simple that sometimes it feels almost trivial. But it's not trivial whatsoever. It's not small. It's, it's profound. That we can say, God, I'm sorry. Sometimes I've been tempted to join the wrong team. Sometimes I've been lured into thinking that evil is a good path. God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And God, thank you for your offer of eternal life. So the prayer is really simple. Let's not overcomplicate it. It's simply saying... Sorry, God. Please forgive me. And thank you for coming in my life. I invite you to pray that prayer with me today. Some of you have prayed that many times. 
But we all need to be reminded and we need to remember that and cling to that when other things think, seem chaotic. And maybe, maybe you've not prayed that or not sincerely given your life over to that. And I'd say, God will win. Evil will not. Don't be deceived. So I invite everyone to join me in praying this prayer. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the sin I've committed. Please forgive me. And God, thank you. Thank you for giving me the gift of life. God, we know you hear our prayers today. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing in just a moment, but what I want to say to you is cling to this. This is the essential of faith. And if you are struggling with it, trying to figure it out, if you are tempted to think, hey, evil is prevailing, or this is something that is... Uh, overwhelming in my life and I can't figure this out. This is what we're here for. The community of faith is here to proclaim that God is making everything new. We're here for you and we believe in you and we believe God has a hope for your future. We believe God has a hope for your life. And so that's what we're here for. We love you and we're going to continue to proclaim that. And so reach out to us, connect with us so we can continue this conversation and continue to proclaim that we are going to be on God's team and we're going to follow him and follow his path. And we're not going to let evil prevail in our lives. Would you stand with us and sing?